Hello and welcome to episode 178 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my life's dream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely... I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. To solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And so the countdown begins with our final three podcasts in our Desperately Seeking Paul series. And I can't quite believe I'm saying this either. Here's a trip into Black Barn Studios for an unforgettable conversation with studio manager and engineer Charles Reese. From assistant engineer on Heavy Soul in 1997 to becoming studio manager at Black Barn, a.k.a. Paul Weller HQ in 1999, Charles has played a key role on the sound of so many incredible Paul Weller singles, EPs, and albums. He even pops up on a heap of songs, playing bass, drums, various synths, harmonium, piano, auto harp, electronics, electric organ, guitar, and percussion, yes, check out that incredible egg whisk on the song Long Time. I'm so delighted that Charles is joining us on the podcast. This is not something he does, really. But what you're going to hear is his story. We're going to dive right back to the beginning and we'll dig into some of those Paul Weller connections, some of those songs, those albums along the way, and really take a deep dive into the operational running of the studio. Linking into albums like Heliocentric, Illumination, 22 Dreams, Wake Up the Nation, right up to date with On Sunset and Fat Pop. Charles has played such an important role in what we hear out of our speakers, through our headphones, in the car, wherever you listen to Paul's music. So it's a real honor a real delight to have charles on the podcast like a proper proper world exclusive i'm so excited about sharing this with you i know you're gonna love it let's get into it charles reese thanks for joining me thank you dan everybody in the weller setup has a nickname is there one for mr reese um there are a few but probably i shouldn't mention them <laughs> paul likes to call me the wizard and that's the wizard yeah or just wizard nice like because i was thinking that you're almost like that the gatekeeper of the studio right of black barn really yeah yeah so it's yeah. almost like you're gandalf that like on the bridge of the, of the was it the hobbit or the lord of the rings or whatever right i think i'm probably the same age yeah, yeah. 
let me describe what we're in, right? This is the control room of Black Barn Studios. <laughs> I mean, as I say that, I feel like I'm getting a tear in my eye, Charles. So <laughs> look away. I mean, this is ridiculous. We've it's got- not Star Trek. It's not the Enterprise. Yeah, but this, I mean, this is mental, man. I mean, I created this silly podcast three years ago, and here I am in the studio. Yeah. What can I say? It, it is magical. I find myself pinching myself, and Paul's the same. He's like, I can't believe we do this. This is what we do. Yeah. You know, this is just, I always dreamt of doing something like this. Paul still thinks it's amazing just to be able to do this, but it's his place. It's his living room, an extension of his living room, if you like, because he doesn't have to think of it all the time as work, which is pretty fantastic doing something you love doing. Now, I remember at school thinking, what would I do if it wasn't music? And at one point I thought, oh, maybe I'll become um, a cabinet maker or something. But you needed too many qualifications for that. So that just, that got scuppered. But it was always music with growing up with my brother. He was really sort of a force in this. And now, you know, all the friends I've had, Jamie Johnson, you get a mention, mate. Nice one. Yeah, they've all been really inspirational. But Paul just absolutely loves his music. And it's so nice for him to have this place to himself, but he does share it with many other people. I hate to see this place go one day. This is going to be a studio forever. It is quite a luxury, though, to have your own studio in this day and age, right? Well, a studio like this is a big space, so it costs money to run it. But a lot of people have their own studios, but they have them in smaller spaces usually because you don't need all this equipment to do it all yourself at home. It's a space where it's not just about recording here. There's some other things that happen here that, you know, a lot of friendships happen here. And a lot of people come here and then they learn something. We all learn every session, but it's sort of like a meeting place. And when people leave, they always feel, I don't know, they leave with a smile on their face. The most ridiculous thing of this podcast, Charles, is the fact that, you know, I brought me gear down, I've lugged in and plugged on me, microphones around, we've got these things, this setup, we're, we're in a studio. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It didn't at any point occur to me that, you know, you could have engineered this thing. I could have done. Yeah. But you would have made it sound just so much better recording it. <laughs> if it was singing, that's another thing. But uh, talking, we'll, we'll that's a different that. art that is yeah. recording, definitely. We'll, we'll get to that. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, got, I can see a guitar in the corner. We will get to that. Um, the th- I mean, the studio seems to have such magic. Paul Weller and the association with the studio predates him owning. It goes back to like demos of Wildwood, right? He did the first album. I think he did a song called Amongst Butterflies here. I think they did some demos. And as we tell your story on this podcast, we'll get to your role of Black Barn, how you arrive here at that setup of when Paul buys the studio. But you mentioned this love of music going back to you know being a kid and stuff. Did you always have in your head the love of the production bit or was it actually... Because you play as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started with guitar. Initially, my brother and myself would make guitars when we were like really small just to smash them up because we'd seen the who. Not <laughs> that we'd learn how to play them, but you know, eventually we progressed to putting strings on them and then smashing them up and then we thought now we better learn properly learn some instruments so he learned the bass i learned the guitar and and then we sort of started being in bands together and well that's how it started okay and what was the type of what was the music that you were into when would this have been as well uh this would be in the 70s and then and and then probably about i think 1981 i started guitar so by yeah, 1981, myself and um, my brother were trying to get a band together or, or different people together to just come and play or whatever. So that was the beginning of it, playing. Then I learned to record as well. I got a little porter studio, a Tascam porter studio, and that sort of meant that I could record what we were doing. And then other people, other bands wanted to be recorded. And, and I remember thinking, 
at sports day at school. I wasn't in on it. So we're just sitting in and I remember playing the teachers, the recordings that we've been doing. And while everybody else was like looking at the sports, the teachers going, oh, give us a listen. And yeah, they were really, they were really cool about it, really encouraging. And that's what I knew. I, I had to do this. I had to do this, even though, you know, I've got to get my qualifications and all that stuff. It's got to be done. It had to be music okay. and it had to be really recording because I saw so many people in bands. And yeah, I thought if you're in a band, it's great fun to be in a band. But there's something about working with all these other people when you're recording them. And collectively, you amass all of that knowledge of what other people are doing and hopefully share with other people as well. And it almost feels as if every time I work with a new band, we learn so much off each other that they, they in turn, they're going to share that and I'm going to share this with others. And it never ends. Presumably the jam were an influence back in those days, were they? Or yeah, were, were yeah, they not yeah. one of your bands? Oh, no, I, I liked them, but I was late. I was a late bloomer um, going underground. Everybody heard that. I just thought it was amazing. Never really a big fan, but the power of it always got me. And and I'd like some sort of powerful music like The Who, and I'd say pretty much The Who were the biggest band. But then The Jam, I think they've done something more over time than The Who have done. So The Who were massive. They exploded in the 60s, and by the time they sort of hit the late 70s, you know, Moon's last concert or whatever, it was amazing. All of that was amazing. But then it sort of petered out a little bit, I'm sure. Pete Townsend or Roger would probably say, oh, no, it's, you know, it's grown since. It has, but it's changed. It's really changed. And in some ways, it's changed for the better because Pete's probably got more of what he wants in mm. the music. But with Paul's stuff, with the jam, he stopped it at its peak. So it couldn't change after that. That was it. It's like frozen forevermore like that. And it seemed to have grown. That sort of following has just grown more and more over the years. And there's so much respect for the band. And in a way, I think they're so much more powerful than The Who because they did everything in such a short period of time. But, you know, that's the power of just three people in a band. And also, I think the amount of material that they had in that, what, six, seven years is a releasing albums releasing singles single after single b-side after b-side which is the quality is incredible but it was a really short period of time to leave such an amazing catalogue of work wasn't it but like you say it's it's in that capsule it's done yeah yeah it happened it's never going to get buried but at least i think people keep on sharing that and every now and again when or you get other bands like from the jam that they're keeping that the flame going but they're never going to be any more jam songs written that's it. That's all they've got to do. But the fans love it. Everybody loves it because it's just, I don't know, it's in- instant. And if anything, I think Paul, like, it's like, yeah, it's good. It's great, some of that stuff. But it's amazing that he's changed so much since then. He likes playing the odd one, you know, or to start. Or I remember when he did Eaton Rifles and how amazing it was to hear that again. But the power, again, I just can't get over the power of that band and, and how some of it still lives. So it lives in all the band members. They all love the jam. Yeah, of course. They all want their own little, oh, can we do this one? Can we do that? But actually, when Paul says, right, we're going to do a different jam song, everybody's like, yes, thank you. (laughs) We'll talk about your journey and how you get to Black Barn, like I say, but I'd love to initially understand the function of the studio. So in the kitchen, just directly behind us, we're like I said, we're in the control room here. We're surrounded by, I mean, so many original, would you call them vintage keyboards, I guess, maybe, right? Yeah. Yeah. like throughout the whole studio, yeah. there's the mixture of modern technology with old. It's, it's a beautiful thing. So we'll dig into all that. But the kitchen directly behind me has this massive whiteboard up on it. I mean, not yeah. only do I get cups of tea throughout the entire day, which I imagine is a key part of life here at Black Barn. It's the most, it's the essential part of it. <laughs> Whoever makes the tea is 
your friend. Okay. That's it. Everybody wants to be the team maker. Not really. Nobody does. But the person that does it becomes just like God. It's like, bless you for making us a couple. Thank you. No, he's heaven. <laughs> but there's also this massive whiteboard, which ha- which is you planning out your year. Uh, so we have on the left-hand side, we have the months of the year. Yep. Uh, across the top, in a, you imagine this kind of matrix, this grid, if you like, people. Uh, you've got the, the days of the month, right? Yeah. The calendar. Um, yeah, the yeah. calendar. So, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this is a thing that somebody's invented. Yeah. <laughs> Charles has come up with this, and <laughs> we need a name for it. Hold on. Yeah, you're right. That would have been an easy way to explain Sorry. it. I was trying to give people a visual. Hilarious. Um, <laughs> and on this, it maps out. So you start planning the year and you yeah, know, and what's yeah, going to happen and whatever. Yeah. But you get to the end of the year and then you take a photo and just delete the lot, right? Yep. Yeah. Start again. It's great because you have this feeling, uh, having done it for now for, I don't know, 24 times now. I know what's going to happen. I know when we get to that Christmas period, everything sort of goes quiet, but it doesn't. Somebody will want to use the studio. And then we'll get to like the 2nd of January and that board is clean all the dates on, all the numbers and everything on. And then it's like, just rapidly gets filled up. It's like, oh, tour. Right, let's put the tour on there. Oh, recordings. Oh, let's get some recordings on there. And it just, before you know it, when we're sort of, we're six months into June and everything's on there, by the time we actually get to June, we've pretty much got the, the dates for everything else. So it's, I don't know, it just, but it's the same thing every year. There's almost the same thing going. Paul doesn't record an album every year, but he's always recording. So it just means that he might put one out every other year. Paul's use of the studio has changed as well. He's, he's allowing loads more people to use it, his friends, just so it gets used, you know. And we'll talk about some of those and the work that you've produced and engineered for others outside of the Weller thing. Take me through the average week, the average work day when Paul's here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. So what's it? So, you know, All right, arrival so time. Anything, anything. He could be here from the day before. I'll start at 10. And if he's around, great. If he's not and he's down the nest, there'll still be something to do. But when we get started, properly started, you know, say about midday, we don't really stop until maybe for half an hour, 20 minutes for dinner and then carry on till whenever. Hopefully not too late, but 12 to, you know, one, two o'clock in the morning, maybe three. And we'll do that till we decide it's the end of the week or it's Thursday. We'll stop on the Thursday. More often than not, we tend to do like three days on because it's really hard doing four or five when you're working till two o'clock in the morning. And uh, none of us are getting any younger. (laughs) Has that changed much? A little, a little, but I think that's only for sanity, say on the, the album that we're doing at the moment. It's intense. It's intense, but it's good to get things done quickly rather than mulling things over and listening again and again and again. So the intensity's upped, but we've had to sort of shorten the week, maybe. It's not that we're working every week doing the songs. Yeah, that'd be a typical week, really, would probably be about three, maybe four days on, and maybe we'd leave on the Friday and everybody go home. And how often is it the full band are here, or it's just you, Paul, maybe Stan, Kyber? What's the mix generally, the, the ordinary setup in that? Let's say Paul decides he wants to record one or two, maybe three songs. Then we'll get some of the band down. It doesn't have to be all of the band. We don't necessarily need to have two drummers. But Ben will come down, Steve Craddock will come down, and we might get Tom, Jacko. Yeah, in fact, definitely Jacko for a lot of things because it's not just sax. You know, he plays all the different saxes. He's pretty top on the flute. He's magic on the flute. 
So it's sort of really useful, especially on the, you know, what we've been doing the last few years. Jacko's been involved so much more. Yeah, and it was lovely to see him back in the fold. I think as yeah. we were talking on that podcast chat with him, I think it was, you know, him reaching out and going how much he loves on Sunset. And then suddenly he's, he's back in the band. It was wonderful. Yeah. It was brilliant. He's been in it, I think, in the early noughties. He did some stuff. Yeah, the As Is Now Studio 150, yeah. I think some of the live shows, right? But that's still but 20 years ago. Benjamin Herman, wasn't it? And I think he yeah, got involved in that. But yeah, from the Paul Weller movement as well, because I remember seeing him in those some of those early shows and just thinking he's a cool dude but now that he's back and it's just really easy he's just so easy to work with and if Paul wants him to play flute and something sometimes we just send him the file and he does it from home right. and he comes back and it's yep that's it that's great fantastic just so easy to work with him Let's talk about your journey to get here then. So first of all, so you grew up in Weybridge, which is yeah. up the road, yeah. right? Yeah. So always been local? I think we moved to Weybridge in 76 from a place outside of Oxford. 76, yeah. And then moved to Ripley. And then, yeah, I've stayed local ever since. So take me through that journey to, you know, you know you want to work in music production. First job was at Silk Sound in Berwick Street. It was radio... It was jingles and adverts, and I didn't like it. It wasn't music. It was the fun. My, I remember my first day was it was fun because it was running around between. They had another studio around the corner and making all the teas and the coffees. And so Bernard Cribbins comes in first, I think, and then Chris Tarrant comes in, and all these people want to do their little adverts. And Craig Charles comes in. He was like at the end of it all, doing. A, am I allowed to say products? Yeah, 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 yeah. Dunkin' yeah. Donuts. Okay, right. that, uh, yeah. Well, if they can send me a. Box, Box of Dunkin' yep, Donuts, that'd be lovely. Right, yeah. Yeah. And then ended up shouting with him at the end of it on the advert, just going, here we go, here we go. That was my first day. And <laughs> after that, it just it was downhill and I just had to get out. And then eventually I got back into it with Phil Manzanera. He, he gave me a job and that was local in Chertsey. And an amazing guy. He, is, um, he was an amazing boss and I've got a huge amount of respect for him because he's a player. He's not like technical He's a player that just gets everybody involved, just wants to mix it up because that's essentially what Roxy did. Roxy Music were there to just big melting pot. But that's what he was like with musicians in the studio, always introducing everybody. Oh, you work with this person. You work with that person rather than, oh, this is a technical session here. You're going to be engineering this. Just let it see what happens. You know, you never know what's going to happen. And Phil was, I think he still is. He's like so open-minded about stuff. I always remember that time when so many of us around the, the table tennis table having dinner one night and he wanted to celebrate everybody's work at the end of the year, right? It's about around Christmas time. He decided that he was going to put on an awards ceremony and really mix it up. So, you know, he invited quite a few people to this thing to sit around and everybody, basically just everybody patting each other on the back. Nice. But, uh, yeah, it was a really good spirit in those days. That's your first connection with Weller? Yes. Through yeah. Heavy Soul time? Yeah, yeah, because Paul was looking for a studio because the manor had closed down. And he already was using, oh, I can't remember what it's called. It was a studio in Beckington that was Van Morrison. Oh, the Wallpack, wasn't it? Oh, the Wall Hall or something? Yeah, the Wall Hall, I think, yeah. Near where my cousin lives, right next door. And um, so he did a lot of the album there, but I think he needed somewhere else. Came to gallery, loved it. And it just so happens that Robert Wyatt was there at the time as well around that time. So Paul got involved with Robert on producing a couple of songs for his album. Really got on well with Robert. So that got me to really work with Paul, recording Paul and with Jamie. Jamie would do a lot of the recording and I'd do the mixing. That's when I remembered Paul really taught me something. He taught me something which is 
you, if you think you're going a little bit too far on something, you might be wrong. You might need to go huge, a hell of a lot further on it, louder, more of it, cut it. Just don't be afraid. You know, there's a session we did with Robert uh, while I was mixing it and I literally ran out of, of fader room. I needed to turn it up and he said, no, just make it louder. What? I'm thinking, this is just daft. So I remember putting it through another fader and it was just really starting to sound, oh, it was horrible. And then I thought, oh my God, it's amazing. I see exactly what he wants. It was to be unpleasant. It was to sound horrible. And ever since then, I thought, you think you might know how to do something, but there's always that little question mark where maybe we could do this like better or just more of it or just make more of a point. I've worked with some other people and they're really reluctant to do that. They always like mix within the boundary. It seems to me that Paul has always been somebody who's been interested in the studio and using that as a tool yeah. as well, right? This isn't just an artist who rocks up, you set it all up, he records his stuff, he goes home. No, He's interested in, like you say, pushing the limits, trying different things, experimenting. Yeah. Like yeah. right back to the solid Bond days, right back to the jam and yeah. sound effects and things like that. He must have known Beatles techniques, the amount of time the Beatles spent in the studio. It was their studio, EMI Studios. And that must have influenced him somewhat, what you can do. I mean, and Tomorrow Never Knows is one of those songs that they broke all the rules for it. And I think pop music came out of that. And that's a studio tool. If you hadn't had that studio, you just, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be that. It would just be a live track. So Jamie Johnson has been on the podcast. Okay. Yeah. And I mentioned to Jamie that you were coming on. And yeah, you grasped me up, you did, yeah. yeah. And ja <laughs> Jamie says, uh, great, you finally got hold of him. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I hope you have a good day down at the barn. If you wanted to ask me a question from me, it would be, how come you don't call more often? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I know the answer. He lives in Black Barn World. He said, I don't know if it's interesting enough. Trust me, this is interesting enough. I don't think I mentioned it when you interviewed me, but you could remind him about his long hair. Oh, He had it... <laughs> He had it for years. Me, Alice, the manager at Gallery Studios, we all used to nag him about getting it cut, but he was adamant that he never would. It was proper Francis Rossi long ponytail. <laughs> anyway, Paul Weller came to the gallery in about 1997 to do Heavy Soul. Loved everything about it, but said that Charles had to get his hair cut. It was gone virtually the next day. <laughs> the power of the mod father. I heard. See, I didn't hear that story. Um... <laughs> Alice told me that it was Marco Nelson that told her. That's what I remember. And the moment she told me that, I remember in the kitchen at Gallery, I just went, ah, oh, at last. Because I had been meaning to get it cut for ages, for ages. I just, just kept on bottling it. And that was it. Yes, so that was it. The next morning, straight down, all off. And I remember going to the studio and then Paul turns up and I just went, right, I'm, I'm answering the door. Right, so I go to open it, and he looks at me, and he's like taken back a bit, and then just rubs my head and goes, "Oh, skidded!" Like that. That's it. And like, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was it like? Proper like Emmanuel Petit ponytail, footballer ponytail, or, oh, or like rock god ponytail? I think Francis Rossi is probably the best one because Francis always had that receding hairline, and so did I. <laughs> Let's, <laughs> and it's just wrong as well because this it just reminds me of so many people since that I just thought, God, you look so wrong. <laughs> but I don't know if you can mention that. Is there photographic evidence of this that I can put in the show notes? <laughs> no, no. I've got a mug somewhere with a picture that my brother took when we were in San Francisco, I think. And uh, we were in the park and it was all really nice, you know, near the Golden Gate Bridge and beautiful. But then there's me and I just think, oh, God, I think I'm wearing Richie from 
Manic Street Preachers glasses in there. You know the one when disappearing? Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah they were left here because they did their first album here. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. This is pretty well, right? Yeah. Okay. 90, well, 91, I think they oh, did their right. first album here. And I used to come here in the mornings to clear up. And How long were you at Gallery then? Uh, from 92 till 97. Phil sold it in 97. And then we went up to London, up to uh, Queen's Park, and also just on the canal at the top, Portobello Road, around there. So we had a place up there. Just moving from studio to studio until Phil got his purpose-built studio ready. And then that's when I started working with Paul. By the time Phil had settled in, Jamie was his engineer there. In fact, actually, towards the end of that, Jamie said, I'm going to record some of Paul's next album, Heliocentric. And do you want to come down and bring your bass? Nice. Okay. So we'd camped a... Jacobs around this time that I was working for Phil, but actually I needed some work elsewhere to start broadening things. And then Jamie said, right, come down. And then that's when Paul asked, to, you know, if I'd look after this place. So that would be in the end of 98, I think. And so I started here in 99. Okay. And it was obviously a studio that had history. Yeah. And like I say, Paul would actually use it as a studio, but it, come, it suddenly comes on the market, presumably. Yeah. Yeah. So Robin Black, who owned it previously, who'd been working with men, you know, a lot of people from the seventies and the eighties, Jethro Tull, close association with them, recording them. He may have done Black Sabbath or there, there's been some bands that he's done before he had this place. And then he got this place and wanted to keep this going as a residential studio. Sadly, the nineties came along. And the money started going down. And I think by the time he was renting it out to Charlie Morgan by about 90, 1994, I think, 95. And then I think then that's when Charlie was going, well, maybe I don't need it. So Robin's like, oh, I'll sell it. And I'd met Paul down here on that first album just very briefly. So, yeah, that would have been, yeah, so that's about 98. Okay. And you've been here, you've been here quite a bit then already like operating out of the studio. Yeah, the I, studio used hire, I used to hire it in, as an empty shell as well, because it sort of went out of business in 94. It was important for Robin to get money, some income for this studio. And Phil Manzanera said, well, why don't we rent it and build a studio in a day? put all the equipment back in and we use it because it's cheaper to do that than to hire a ready-built studio. So I remember we did that. Robin used to allow us to use it for rehearsals in this band I was in at the time with a very good friend, Tony Chick. He was the person that introduced me to the studio in the first place because we were like cleaners, office cleaners, you know. And he said, oh, you got to come down here and clean this place. So like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did it every day, any time I could before going into work or Amazing. whatever. What a wonderful connection. Yeah. I was just amazed to be in the studio. I just loved it. I remember that, that first time walking in. It's like whenever anybody walks into a studio for the first time, they go, whoa, this is unbelievable. And it is. It is. It has a purpose. We obviously have to work here, but it's an amazing purpose of recording music amongst a bunch of people that you wouldn't normally associate with, say, and yet you're surrounded by some of the most sort of artistic people in a really weird and strange place. This was the old-fashioned studios that had the mystery because you never really saw what was going on in those days. Whereas nowadays, you tend to get a lot of studios that are a little bit more clinical, but they're being filmed on people's phones all the time. And you get to see quite a bit more of the magic that goes on in the studio. But I always remember that we couldn't really see that. Sometimes you get the odd little pop video where they're miming in the studio or something. But I used to love that. Like the beginning of uh, Roxy Music, same old scene, the video was great. The desk, massive desk. And the first thing you see with all the buttons that are lit is they spell out Roxy Music at the top of the desk. Brilliant. And I just thought, that's so cool. And that would have been eight or nine at the time. That just like stuck in my head. And then seeing Brian Ferry like 
just being really cool in the studio and then Phil being really cool. And I thought there was something about it and everything from the seventies, when you ever saw bands in, in the studio in the seventies, they just look cool. Really cool. Obviously a lot of, there was a lot of smoking and drinking going on in those days, but you all saw a bit of that. And I thought, wow, this is, you know, you can't normally do that in the office. You wouldn't want to spend like all your day and night in the office, but the amount of sessions that we've all done where we've worked through the, the night, even like maybe I remember doing three days on the trot before going to bed because you want to do it. You really want to do it. Well, when you're young anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but you're in, I guess you're, yeah, you're in that zone. It's creative. Yeah. You're also in company that you enjoy is important as well, yeah. right? You're all yeah. mates, aren't you? Like, yeah, yeah. Particularly when you get to know somebody, you know, you, you could be good mates to begin with because you say you're either in a band, you're working together. But with Paul's case, I've known him for so long now, as with a lot of other people, you tend to find, you think you know what they need without actually having to ask and you can get everything ready and things generally run smoother that way. But Paul's Paul and he will always surprise you. He doesn't give you much time off. In the sense that, oh, sorry, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> well, because I always have this example of like, if you're a Kate Bush fan, as much as I love Kate Bush, like you're just getting an album every 15 years. Oh, I mean, right. Paul yeah. was pretty prolific. Yeah. To the point in this studio right now, there are things stuck up on the wall that I can't share with you folks yet. I say I can't. They're not mine to share. Do you know what I mean? But there are things stuck up in the studio where you can see what's coming next. You can see the, you know, the deluxe things. You can see the song list of stuff that hasn't yet been recorded, all that kind of stuff, right? It's constantly on the go. And we know this from the amount of material we've had in recent years from True Meanings and, you know, um, Fat Pop on Sunset, all that. Yeah. He's always on. Yeah. This is him though. It's his family. He's got family and he's got music. There's sort of nothing really else, you know, maybe clothes or whatever, but ultimately that satisfaction of writing a song and singing it and playing it to people and having people play it with you and you can't beat that. What else would you want to do? There's also that magic of in the morning, Paul could be coming in with nothing or he could be coming in with like a little voice note on his phone. And we'll have to talk about how that's changed so much over the years, like the the technique of making these records. But you start with that and then at the end of the day, you're coming out with a song. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) So, well... (laughs) I suppose if you look at the amount of people that come up with, say, a little riff and they jam the riff out and they just keep that going and then things fall into place, it can be really simple and really quick. It's when you think about something too much that it doesn't work. So if it's a great little idea and it's only about two seconds or four seconds long, the chances are it will just take us a moment to try it and we'll know. But yeah, I love those little snippets. Little grooves that he puts down, little ideas for like grooves. Like he did it once with um, a song, She Moves with the Fair. He sung this little riff into his phone, gave me the phone. I had that. I was listening to that on my headphones and I put my phone into record and put it on the kick drum and recorded that rhythm that he was sort of playing and it got into my headphones. That was the beat for the song just because it was off his phone. I just played it and Stan recorded it and we just looped it. That's just from one little idea. And how much stuff ends up on the, there's not a lit, there's not a cutting room floor as such these days, all on computers, yeah. but how much stuff do you go, yeah, that's been it, delete, that didn't work? Okay, well, I suppose it leads me to say that demos, sometimes de- a lot of demos don't really exist anymore. We build from the first recording, which would have been a demo. But when you say demo, this is not like the days of like Wildwood, let's say, for instance, when that thing would be fully fleshed out pretty much on an yeah. acoustic guitar or the jam days, like he'd come in to Bruce and Rick and they'd do the rhythm section. Yeah. It's, it's very different, right? Those- oh, yeah. Yeah. We, we can start off with an idea, simple idea. But um, what you're saying is you would have needed to have put it to the band 
to make it happen. But most recordings nowadays, you don't need to. You can start off with an acoustic guitar, sing at the same time. Somebody can play drums on top of that, put bass on top. Paul could be doing all of it, all himself. And that could be the real thing. It may still be a demo, but it may tra- it may change and morph into the real thing. So it's really hard to sort of say, well, we've thrown something away because, yes, I suppose essentially things do get they're just muted. Yeah, you're just turning off the yeah. the, the channel on the thing, right? No, but yeah, I, when 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 it comes to deleting something, I'm 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 very reluctant to use the word delete because delete means it's like destroying it, and oh, no, nah, nothing gets destroyed. We record everything and we keep everything, but you're never going to hear it again really but we know it's there so maybe in about 500 years time when somebody's doing a compilation or something they're really looking for those weird and wonderful bits which i hope they don't find (laughs) um they will there is some really amazing stuff but again it's like it feels horrible to say delete nowadays just like oh we'll move on let's move on but this idea that you're building layers, I guess it does. I, I was thinking this is more modern because of the community te- technology. But you are you met reference like the Beatles earlier on. This, yeah. is, this is these are not new ideas necessarily no. in that way of layering up songs like that. It's, it's just you're able to do them e- in a quicker, easier way now because of computers, because of technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah sonically as well. Uh, when the Beatles were doing their thing, they were they were recording a bunch of instruments and then bouncing those onto one track. They had four tracks. They put three things, three different instruments onto one track. And then they go record over tracks one, two, and three, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you'd get a generation loss, a sound quality loss. Nowadays, we don't have to think about that. We don't even think about tape anymore. We don't use, we rarely use tape. It's so expensive. No, just keep going, keep recording. And it's gone full circle now where we start thinking now, let's just get this early on. Let's not waste any time by recording a thousand different instruments to then only use 20 of them. Let's record 20 and maybe use 10 of them, or let's just record as much of it live as we possibly can. That's when now, I think that's where we've got to now. I think we've sort of decided rather than keep on playing it and 200 takes, rather than do 2000 tracks, whatever, let's just try and get an idea early on and then stick to that plan. I'm not saying that's the case for any, you know, thing current at the moment, but the idea is, we don't have to waste so much time now. We we know we've got unlimited stuff, but that can really hold you back. I've I've seen some people, myself included, think, "Oh yeah, we could really we could they, turn this into something amazing." Where do we start? If you've got a hundred tracks or something, where do you start? It's got to happen early on, I think. And there's also that decision that you need to make when it's done, isn't it? Like yeah. you know, this song is now finished because ultimately you could you could be Lee Mavers and we're still working on our yeah. number two like twenty years, thirty years later, whatever it is, right? It's like you know, th- th- there's a cutoff point. Who makes that call? Who goes? This is done. This is finished. Uh, it's, it's Paul, definitely Paul. There there are moments where if we do something else, like um, like we did the Jules Holland special here, and because of lockdown. They had to come here rather than Paul go to the studio. And we did a song called Glad Times. Love that song. And I yeah, it's such song. an amazing oh. song. But that version is amazing. And it was because it was post, well, during this lockdown and people weren't playing music live and they wanted to get out. We all came down, had everything set up and Paul just comes in just to quickly rehearse it, does one pass of it. This is before the film crew were here. This is the day before and goes, yeah, that's it okay this is a bit weird i thought we might want to play on a bit more anyway the next day comes we do the record we're starting the recording they're filming but i take three i'll say i just said to him that's the one that is the one he goes oh all right okay can we do some more though 
which he never likes doing. He's like, oh, you know, if that's it, I don't want to have to overplay it. That's pr- that's probably what he's thinking. I don't want to get bored of playing this. Hmm. He just wasn't getting bored of playing it. The same song, yeah, right. So we got the take. So we, com- you know, we committed to that audio because. I think he felt that I'd probably make a good call by by stopping it there so that they could relax a little bit and then the guys could get footage of them playing from different angles, whatever. But I might make the call for something like that. But ultimately, it's Paul's decision to make the call on where he wants to stop in the production of the song, in the especially with the amount of takes you might do anyway. And he's always an early take. Get it in one if you can or tr- try and get it. Even if you've made mistakes, get it in the first few. We'll talk about the current lineup, the current band yeah. oh, that yeah. we're working with in a sec, right? Because that magic of the studio, that kind of osmosis, I want to dig into. This isn't the first time Paul's had his own studio. Solid Bond has come up on the podcast a lot. The Style Council years, his own studio there. And they talked about this kind of vibe of it being like real family, cottage industry thing. Everything ran out of there. Very similar to Black Balm where, you know, you've got the offices here and stuff like that as well, right? But I think Mick was talking about the fact, um, and Brendan Lynch, talking about the fact that like in the morning they come in and you, you spend like an hour playing music to each other before you get started and stuff like that. Is there, there's still this kind of vibe of this studio whereby you're sharing inspiration with each other and things like that? Right. Yeah. When Paul comes in, if he wants to play a tune, he'll play a tune. And it's usually going to be an amazing thing. If he says it's great, there's something there. And I will be like, oh, wow. If I put on a tune, I don't I don't really put on music in the morning. I tend to want to just start and crack on with what I want to do, you know, get on and do the work. But um, I think now that's transferred to the evenings. I think everybody wants to crack on nowadays. And then by the time after curry time or whatever, you know, it's a, it's like, we'll, we'll go work a bit more and then we'll have a listen to some tunes on the band may sometimes want to play some of their stuff. And it's a really good time to sort of to, to hear what other people are doing. And I remember when Steve Pilgrim was playing Paul songs a few years back and thinking, yeah, this is going to be good. This is going to be a really good album, but it's the best time to listen to music, you know? So I think Brendan's days, they started off, by listening to tunes because it just got everybody in the mood. I think I think we're a bit older now and we just go, oh, let's have a coffee first and then we'll crack on or something. You know? <laughs> straight in, straight in. I love this. I mean, how many curries have you had from the Ripley Curry Garden? <laughs> I, I'd like to think that Paul's kept them going. They've not shut down. They're, the lockdown didn't stop it. You know, they survived through that. I think Paul helped them. But I feel like if you if you didn't like curry, you'd be screwed as a band yeah. member, wouldn't you? It's... <laughs> It's obligatory. You can be a vegan and still have curry. There is no excuse, you know. Yeah, and who's going the hottest, right? So, as some of them going korma, come on, who's who's ordering what? Well, Paul's a bit of a mixture. He won't go for the the soft curries, but you know, he'll occasionally he'll go for something like a madras or vindaloo, which. Mm, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, Steve Craddock, he likes a madras. It's always a madras. And sometimes I've seen, we've all done this. We all think, yeah, it'd be all right. It'd be fine. Nah. <laughs> <That's> nah. <too> <laughs> hot. Even the madras is hotter than the vindaloo. It's like, what? Where did that come from? <laughs> and are we eating in or are we taking out? Are we bringing back to Black Barn? More often bring back. Yeah. Okay. It's a takeaway. That, or they do deliver. Is that because you want to crack on or listen yeah. to tunes or whatever? You're still kind of in the zone. You, you yeah. Want to, yeah. But it's hard to stop. It's hard to stop. And even when we do stop, I might just come in and just carry on and eat at the same time. Just because there's like this moment where everybody else is talking amongst themselves. 
it's so nice to enjoy curry and to work, you know. Sometimes you have to give the curry a bit more respect. So sometimes we're eating in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like it. The, I mean, the life of an engineer is very different to the band. Obviously, they can go and produce, so they can go away. They, they've done their bit. They're Like you say, they're chatting, they're, you know, they're, they're yeah. chatting about the Beatles, which seems to be the most popular thing they're always doing, right? Whereas for you, it continues often because you've got to do the, you know, the, the filing of the, of the audio files, the labeling, making sure that when you come in the next time to review the track, it's all in the right place, all set up and that. Your work's never done, is it? Yeah. I mean, sometimes it does feel like work in that point of view but actually more often it's uh trying to get to that next stage as quickly as possible because i can't wait they really want to get to this next bit where the band or whoever it is wants to do another recording or something we can wrap this one up quickly and with paul it you never know how many songs you're going to record in a day we got up to heliocentric we got up to paul buying the studio this was 99 yeah yeah how much has the studio as a studio as a working studio as an environment that you're in evolved in that what is that 23 24 years yeah physically in its shape physically in its shape no not much has really changed structurally or anything like that but it's dressed so differently now it's treated acoustically so different now even the live room Paul changed the shape of that there was like a little drum booth in there that looked like a a cottage within a cottage that went we've opened up that room that live room sound wise it has changed a little bit but vibe it's just added so much vibe the desk was already here, so we put in some big Genelec speakers. That transformed it for Paul. He loved them. That was courtesy of a friend of mine, Declan, who does the maintenance here. He was working with Mike Stock of Stock Aiken and Waterman. Okay. And he was getting rid of them. Ten grand, they're yours. They're only a few years old. They're like 50,000 quid. So 10 grand, bargain, no brainer. We put them in and Paul's like, yeah, this is more like it. Now we've got some volume. Uh, So it's all about the kind of, actually, I can hear this thing in the right way, in the right environment, but loud. Yeah. And then we've tweaked the sound. We've just, it's, so that it's developed, but probably you can't see much of the development. A lot of it is behind, you know, the door, the, the computers and the, the mic preamps. But since then, it's all so much better. The mics are so much better. Thank you, Trevor from Sontronics. Little plug there. But he's been really good with us. Really good. Makes some fantastic mics. And to some of the equipment that Paul's bought some of the instruments that he's bought subsequently as well you know they've just added to all of this some of the technology the synths you know the mellotrons and the the memotrons and the other things all these other trons um (laughs) it's a musical studio before it didn't have a piano in it it didn't have a hammond in it it didn't have a Rhodes or a whirly and all these other instruments in it. It was a technical studio, but this is a musician studio. So Paul's grown that and any musician coming here just goes, yeah, I I love it already because it's got all of that musical equipment. It may not have some of the best desks and mic amps and, and or the best mics in the world, but it's got some great vibe to it the aesthetics of the studio seem really important right so the lighting for yeah. instance we yeah. you know that that the, the rugs on the floor yeah yeah you know that's that's not an acoustic thing necessarily it is, or is it, it okay. is actually i think initially it stops people from making too much noise when they're stood up or whatever and it's more comfortable to work on a soft surface rather than say stood up on a hard surface there's little things like that it does change the sound it's got a live sound to it that's not that bright it's not that lively 
So we just thought about darkening it up and putting more in there to darken the sound or to warm it a bit. But yeah, Chris Evans brought that up, I think, on his breakfast show when, once when we did that here. He was talking about, oh, there are all these rugs. What's the story behind, behind all these rugs, Paul? And Paul's going, well, I don't know, you have to ask Charles. I'm going, oh, no, please don't ask me. Please don't ask me. Please don't ask me. <laughs> but it is, I think a lot of it is to do with acoustics and trying to sort of deaden things down and control the sound a little bit more. And that's just trial and error. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you can't beat some really good rugs, you know. If you get some really good <laughs> rugs done, you just like feel good. And it feels like nice and it's a bit like some people do it on stage. Yes. Some people, they've got to have their nice little rug on stage and they're happy. That, yeah. that makes them happy. You, with no rug, no gig. So we've talked heliocentric. Next came Days of Speed, right? Paul's does his live acoustic album. Yeah, yeah. And you turned to Mixer at that point. Ange was the main guy who does it, Paul's live sound, or used to. Ange was really good. He would just do the gigs, record the gigs, and then come back here, set up his desk, and mix it live. And then I just helped him and then did some others as well. I can't remember. It was such a long time ago. It was like 22 years ago yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah. Come on, Charles. Why can't you remember every single incident every <laughs> yeah. single moment? For this sake. That was a, a lovely period to see Paul on his own and with Steve White as well. And just the two of them go off to do these these shows because it's it, forget that there's some really good songs there. When he was starting to play the, the Style Council songs, that's when I really heard them for the first time. I had heard them, but I wasn't like, taken back because some of it sounded very 80s back in the 80s i wonder why <laughs> um but now or then in 2001 uh, these songs just stood out that was a big time i think that actually bled into the, the next album afterwards hmm. illumination and it was also that thing where he was suddenly embracing this catalogue as a whole really He'd done it a bit at the beginning of the Paul Weller solo time at the movement where he had to start, he played a bit of jam, played a bit of style council, but for them, yeah. for Wildwood, for Stanley Road, Heavy Soul, he wasn't playing any of that back catalogue at all. It was all focused on the solo thing. Rightly so, because the tunes were amazing. But suddenly, acoustically, we did Piers the Jam, we did hear English Rose again yeah. and all that kind yeah. of stuff. And here we are, like you said, well, is it now? Yeah, 22 years after that tour of Days of Speed. And he does seem to view the whole thing as a catalogue now. It's all Paul Weller's catalogue now, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, when you put it like that, I I don't know how many songs he's done. It's in the hundreds, like 600 or it's probably more than that now. It is massive. Every time he starts a tour, everybody's thinking, well, what are you going to do? What's going to be on that list? It's a pretty big list. They don't get through all the songs. It gets whittled down very quickly. But- do they start with a blank sheet of paper? Are there songs you can't drop? Uh, oh, good question. It's not really my place to say this because Paul is the, he's the instigator of what happens live. He chooses the songs. He comes in with this list and then everybody sees the list in advance so they can learn the songs. And then, yeah, it just gets whittled down. But I don't really think about it too much. I just think everybody says, well, could you try this one or that one? And he's going, yeah, maybe, you know. I remember he did Sunflower after a while of not doing it. And that performance that that's on Jules Holland from about 93, is it? Yeah, it would be around that. just amazing. And every time I see that, I think, oh, you've got to do Sunflower Live. I've probably said it to him and the band have said it to him so many times that it's like, yeah, why? With the catalogue that that is, it's like, you know, you're you're always going to disappoint people because some of those songs aren't in it. Um, And I I was disappointed for so long that Glad Time is the song you mentioned earlier. Wasn't in the set. It's now in the bloody set list in the European dates and I'm not there, damn it. Um, But (laughs) you're never going to please everybody, are you? It's such an amazing, amazing catalogue of songs. He had a moment when it was after lockdown, I think when he was doing that first tour after lockdown and possibly I think even the next one after that, whereby he was 
deliberately going, well, you know what? I'm, I'm playing a couple of tunes from the first album. Let's put a couple of tunes from Wildwood in and then do a couple from, you know, Stanley Road, which turned into a few from each. And then that was like, wow. To me, that's an amazing era of Paul when he first started going solo. So that's always like a marker a really big marker in the set. But now I don't know if he's interested in um, even sometimes, you know, we missed on Sunset on tour. So he didn't really get much of an airing live, you know, and the same went with Fat Pop. He's done a little bit of it, but I think he's still interested in some of those songs that people don't hear that much anyway. Like, um, so now that he's put the Piper into the set, that was just like a, it wasn't even a B side, was it? It was like a digital download, I think, wasn't yeah. it? Or something, yeah. It's an amazing tune. It's one of my favorites in the set now. That could have been on the album, but it wasn't for whatever reason. But we don't know why. It just happens that I think some songs make sense after the fact. An album is one thing and you get deluxe editions that have got some great obscure songs on them. But sometimes I think, you know, you've you just got to find something a bit different or whatever. And, and I don't know what he's thinking, but when he said the Piper, I just thought, wow. I remember doing that song, you know, when we Stan and, and it just felt great, but it obviously didn't fit the album at the time for whatever reason. But now it's such a strong song. Even Andy Lewis was in the band back when they recorded that one, I think. Maybe was he? Yeah. Or did he play yeah. on that? Oh, I don't know if he played in it. That I but can't remember. It was around that time, wasn't it? It it's feels like, yeah. like there's a live element to it, but how we recorded it, I just remember I've got little sort of pictures of what we were doing, maybe overdub wise, but that is going back a long time now. So Illumination, oh, yeah. Simon Dine enters the picture. Yeah. Yeah. And we lead on to, you know, eventually we lead on to that relationship, that connection with him working on 22 Dreams. And we must talk about yeah. that because Black Barn plays a key part in that album's sound and story. Wake Up the Nation, Sonic Kicks and all that. Yeah. It seems like Paul was really on those, working with Simon, who was really experimenting, doing different things, wanting to kind of push it in a different direction. Do you discuss that in terms of the sonic makeup of the, of the songs? Do you discuss kind of that experimentation and how you want to try and shake things up a bit? I don't really have so much of an opinion about that. I think if Paul's suggesting something, I might be able to give him some ways to do it, but maybe say we could cut this one live because it feels like it could be a really good band song. But it's not, it's not really an original thing for me to say, but we do that so often now because the band are really good. And they have been for years, you know, all the musicians that played have been really good, but it's so easy to get them down. But I can't, yeah, I don't know, instigating the sound. It's a tough one, that, because unless I know what Paul, which direction Paul's going with the song, I, I, I don't really want to influence him. If he thinks it should go down this way, we've got to see that through. But most of the time now, I think when recording, he, he is very much down to, well, what do you think? What do you think? Like a vocal tape. And often I'd, I'd be like, yeah, that's great. Finding it really hard to say, to find something wrong with yeah, it. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then we'll come back later and be like, Oh, yeah, actually, no, it could be better. You know, it's hard because at the time you sort of, you want to go with it. You really want to go with it, but trying to find a different direction or tell them to do something differently. That's hard anyway, mm. unless you've got a vision. There are, I think, what is it? Times whereby to get a sound, that's good. So say, for example, we want to try something a little bit different with the piano or, you know, trying to get a, a slightly stranger sound or whatever. Maybe we don't have to record the drums like this. Maybe we could try them completely different. That sort of thing's great. But when it comes to anything about taking the song in, into a further direction, I think Paul's got that up in his head anyway. I think he's sort of trying to, he's already got a lot of that mapped out. 22 Dreams must have been a really special album to work on yeah, because yeah. it is the life and soul of that 
that album is to me Black Barn Studio. It's it feels like it's a it's a calendar. Your invention must. Oh, must yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm still m- amazed at that. Must trademark that. Um, it feels like it's the calendar of a year. That is what a calendar is, folks. Of a year at Black Barn because you get that spring opening of the album. It takes you yeah. right through the seasons. Right, that's how it feels to me as a listen. That must have been a magical time recording that album. I think it started off as a time whereby Paul was reflecting on his songwriting. Most things had been done with a band live or, you know, there was a lot, certainly a lot done by you start a song with a few people in the studio live and then you do a few overdubs. Then you may embellish it more with orchestra, blah, blah, blah. Bear in mind that I think he'd done the same thing up until Illumination, until Simon Dine got involved. And Simon Dine got involved, the palette changed a bit of sounds then i say i think having done as is now quite strict band not elaborate at all he wanted something else but he's a bit tired of just the band um and then he really got into the tool the studio as a tool that's what changed it simon dine helped him to discover new ways to write music or, or at least to be inspired to write some stuff. You put some a collection of samples together and before you know it, Paul's come up with some lyrics, this, any other. Oh, I might change the key or look this or whatever. And he got a song out of a bunch of samples. And that's right, kick-started Paul into writing songs, more songs, and then allowing more people in the band or, or people like Steve Craddock or myself just to go, oh, what if I play this or what if I do that? Yeah, fill your boots. Fill your boots there because it's all hands on deck on that album. And it was an intense time, so much recording. And it probably was the album that changed it for Paul, I think, studio-wise, once and for all. There were no rules after that. You didn't have to just do this type of album or make sure that everything was as live as it could be, you know. You could do song, you know, music like 111 or God... It's just like this mental, absolutely mental. Funny though, funny because you think that in order to do God, we had to audition different people to try and do this. So at some point, and we'll talk about this, this collection of work, right? You you mentioned like 500 years time, somebody's coming across your hard drives. Yeah. We'll find the other version. So who did God? Was Craddock, right? Uh, Craddock had a go. I think Paul had a go at first, I think. Um, but yeah, Craddock. <laughs> Roger. <laughs> Roger know that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Bargum. Ah, God. Now, you know, you can imagine it, really imagine it. Sorry, Roger, but yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was funny. But then it just sounded really good with Aziz doing it. It's just like, yeah, that's it. It was perfect. That was perfect. Now, I can't sort of imagine it working. I mean, he asked me to do it, I think. But then he said, no, you're going to be too posh. So there's a well of a... <laughs> <laughs> there's a well of version of him redoing it. I, I, think, I can't or? really remember, to be honest. It was, they were late, they were late nights, you know, and, and we were trying different things. But I think because it was Paul's lyric, I'm sure he would have had a go. But I'm not going to look for it because it's taken so long <laughs> yeah, to yeah. find it, you know. Well, we should talk about your filing system. So oh, no. Is yeah. it, I mean, this, embarrassed. this stuff's scattered over because there, oh, yeah. obviously there's loads of stuff that isn't out in the ether, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is there it, there is, is a reason why that, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's Charles is so disorganized. It's multiple. Is, is it sat on one hard drive somewhere in, yeah, well, in a safe be, at Mr. Weller's house? There, or where is oh, it? There'll, there'll, be, there'll be a master drive and there'll be a copy of that drive and there'll be other copies as well floating around another less drives just because it, it's sod's law something's going to happen if there's a fire but i now know that you really need to have a load more of these things because i'm starting to see how valuable these things are it's a bit like with a lot of the bands from the past like a friend of mine who does the maintenance here declan he works with brian may they're constantly doing queen transfers people up at effects 
copy room in London. They do the bulk of the transfers for the main artists, you know, Rolling Stones, U2, whatever. This thing is is really important. And as the years are going on, I'm starting to think we need to get some of this off site more than just the label, more than just at the studio. Because some someday somebody's going to come up and want to know what's going on, but they'll have all this information and there'll be too much. Yeah. So it needs to be refiled, shall we say, you know. Because it's also that as a, as you know, obviously Mr. Weller is a lover of the Beatles. We've had all these box sets where you get alternative versions and that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, as a fan, you're hearing the, how a track evolves and all that is a real joy. And yeah. we haven't had much of that from Paul. I don't know if he's a lover of that kind of thing and almost like revealing the magic or, or, you know, the original demos and those kind of things. But is that mainly because of your crap filing there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's between you and me, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, I'm joking. <laughs> it's because we do so many different versions of a demo or something, we'll explore it, especially in the 22 Dreams era. There were so many things that we could use, you know. Like I said, when we did the, the demo for 22 Dreams, the song, I remember coming back, we were all had a few to drink, recording over Paul's drums that he just played, putting it down. Paul didn't seem to mind. We carried on overdubbing. We did a load of other songs as well. And there'll be all these different versions, but we never really would come back to them because very quickly we knew, like with 22 Dreams, we need a better drummer. Let's get on with that. So we sort of had a bit of the backing track from Simon Dine. So it meant that we could redo that, if you like, start from scratch, but we weren't starting from scratch. But Paul felt that that particular demo version was worthy of the deluxe edition. So, you know, that's how we get to there. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Let me ask you about 2015, I think this was. There's, a, there's this mad occasion at the barn. I want to jog your memory on, okay? So if I say the words bank busted, nuclear, detergent, and blues, does that bring back a memory? It does indeed, yeah. The men in white coats. <laughs> so this was Michael Horowitz, who's no longer with us, sadly. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, Damon Albans here. Yeah. Graham Coxon. Yeah. And Mr. Weller. Um, Andy Crofts as well. Okay, Andy's here as well. I've got a little bit of video I can show you on that. How does this come about? Damon knew Michael, and Michael probably needed a bit of help, shall we say, you know, and, and just a bit of encouragement to maybe just do something. He wanted to put it on vinyl, I think, Damon. So Paul obviously agreed, yeah, just do it down here. Come on, let's do it down here. And they thought it would be a great thing just to make it up, just to improvise everything apart from the poetry, which I don't know if it, that was even read in an order. I think he manipulated it 
as we were going. That first piece was like 55 minutes long. I think. <laughs> and recorded as yeah. live. Yeah. We had, he had Damon on the piano in the live room wearing a white coat, one of the lab coats, the Black Barn Corporation coat. I think, yeah. So, so Michael was in there. He was all screened off. He had his nice little lamp on his lyrics so we could see clearly. And Graham was in the live room playing electric guitar and sax at the same time. Paul was on synthesizers in the control room and Andy Crofts was doing like echoes and things on old echo plexes and Binsons and stuff like that. And we just had it pumping through the big speakers and it was insane. Absolutely <laughs> insane. And I, I will show you a bit. I had to, I couldn't believe it. I, I never take footage of what they're doing. Never filmed anything apart from when say Marco, my son's doing a bit or something, you know, it was nuts. And you, it will make sense. If anybody listens to a bit of it, Feel free, please. It was great. It was good fun. It was good fun. It was good. We all got told off by Michael as well. Oh, really misbehaving, why? yeah. Oh, but right. we started to enjoy ourselves a little bit too much and found it funny. So he's, it's not funny. It's not funny. <laughs> okay. I mentioned earlier on that I wanted to talk about some of the other people who have recorded here. Many of them have been on the podcast, actually. The Weller alumni that I mentioned. <laughs> um, and you've produced their albums. So people like Steve Craddock, you weren't really closely on. Yeah, um, on his with, first album. On his yeah. first LP, yeah. which was recorded here, right? Yes. Before Steve yeah. had his own studio set up. I yeah. Guess, yeah. Uh, Rhoda Dakar. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a while ago, yeah. yeah. Stone Foundation. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. The last three or four albums, I think. Let's talk about those guys because they got a really lovely connection with Paul. At the time of recording just the other day, they were supporting on the European tour. Neil Jones was up doing Broken Stones with Paul, which was lovely yeah. to watch. What are they like to work with in the studio? Had a great, great bunch of guys. I'd sort of heard of them before. They, they came to the studio to get Carlene Anderson to sing on one of their songs. So I recorded that. And, and I thought, oh, they actually, I quite like this music. Never really noticed them before. And somehow or another, they'd mentioned it to Paul. Both the Neils mentioned it to Paul. Paul said, oh, no, can I get involved? So once Paul was on board, the studio, therefore, was like, here you go, guys, have the studio. Let's get this done. Paul ended up producing this album. And I thought they were, they were really fun to be around. They just friendly. They obviously know what they're doing. They're, they're addicted to soul music. That, that's their life, you know. I've never met a band, actually, that seemed to want to work so quickly at getting a live take done. They don't have to rehearse it that much, or at least that's what it seems. They probably do rehearse it behind the scenes before they get to the studio. But even when Paul was with them, playing live with them, manipulating the arrangements a little bit as they were going, they're very quick learners, really quick learners. And they're an eclectic bunch as well. Both the Neil's great. They're characters themselves. But then there's Phil on the drums. He's a lovely guy, but he's an amazing soul drummer. You compare him to Steve White, who also plays with Stone Foundation live as well. And they're chalk and cheese, but in a great way. Steve White is one of the best drummers I know. And I've got to say, Phil, he's on there when it comes to the soul side of it opposites but somehow just perfect really rust and, and they're always the brass section that just full of life easy to work with steve trigg he's a great arranger really good arranger makes it easy to record brass and brass isn't an easy thing to record a whole album of because you usually have to do it in one or two days by the time you've done a few hours of brass the brain's just wondering <laughs> what am i hearing all of this <laughs> sounds like it's a chicken or something but you have a whole day of that because it's just blasts of this and the little blast and the little blast and you're slowly going slightly mad yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's such a great thing with soul music it makes sense it makes absolute sense they work so well together that we don't need much time in the studio to get an album done that's the way they like it they like to rehearse a bit but they also like the fact that 
it's usually the same people on the brass. The band doesn't change. The lineup hasn't really changed that much in the, um, well, I did see their documentary film. Well, I guess it was sort of the last yeah, 10 years, yeah. really. Huh? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. The other thing with them is obviously they're bringing other people into the mix. So Catherine yeah. Williams, who's been on the yeah. podcast, comes down, plays with them. And Mick Talbot back here yeah. with yeah. them. And then with Paul, obviously, I know they're, they're, they're still great friends. anyway. But Steve White, people yeah. like that, you, Carleen, it's great to see them here bringing in more Weller alumni into into Blackburn as well, right? Uh, yeah. Well, I think that I think all of the people you mentioned, they've sort of made their own little careers. They still want that other thing you know to work with other people you could be really really famous and i don't know you could probably say like adele what, what are you doing and maybe she is doing a load of music at the moment or maybe she isn't but i always wonder with people like her who would she like to sing with who would she like to work with because she would be able to pass that on but she would also be able to learn as well and that's what stone foundation do they they, they draw these people in and these some of them have been around for a long time they feel yeah I'd love to get involved. I'd love to play in some great music, sing some great songs, but it's so good to actually be singing on something in another country, even. A lot of the American singers just love to do it. It's the Brits. They like the Brits. Steve Pilgrim, I want to mention as well, that fabulous yeah. album, Beautiful Blue, but other yeah. stuff before that, that, again, you produced some other stuff with him and worked with him on those. Obviously, as a drummer in Paul's band, he, he's incredible, but as a singer-songwriter, yeah. amazing, right? He's in his element when he's written the song. It's something that's in his head and he's performing it the way he wants to do it. He's in control of it. And when he's on it, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. I think the sound of his voice, you know, you can have your own interpretation of the lyrics if you want, but the way he sings it is, I just, it's, oh, it's beautiful. It's, it's something about even Beautiful Blue. That song is, it it's encapsulates the whole album, really, and possibly a lot of what he's done before. I'm not going to say it's his best album because I've, I like all his albums, particularly the one we did with Danny Thompson. That was a moment where I thought, oh, these two people are, are great together. Danny's such a strong personality and he's got such a style on the bass. And Pilks has got his own thing going with him. But put the two together and it was just an amazing album. Can't even remember how long we spent recording it. Two days, maybe? Quick, right? Maybe less than that. I mean, to be fair, Danny is a quick player. Three takes maximum with Danny. He doesn't really want to play it more than that. The chances are he's played it right from the first go anyway. So, and he knows all about that sort of stuff about learning the where your place is in the song, you know. But yeah, he's a character, Danny. Amazing guy. Somebody else I wanted to mention who's been on the podcast, which again would have been a really special recording here at Black Barn, is Declan O'Rourke. Ah, uh, yeah. Great. Love that. Told Declan that you were coming on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is the album Arrivals, which was created here at Black Barn. Paul produced. You were part of the mix, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, Dan. Ask him who his favourite Irish man he ever worked with is. <laughs> <laughs> and why does he not answer my calls? <laughs> There's a theme. <laughs> Liar! <laughs> but seriously, what a beautiful man. He was the third secret element in the making of Arrivals. There was me, there was Paul, and there was Charles. He is one of the great unsung invisible magicians of the music world. Message to him, love to you, Charles L. Bean. Come and visit Ireland soon. Oh, bless him. Oh, he's amazing. <laughs> love that. I'd never really heard his music before Paul introduced it to me. And then when I started doing my homework before Declan turned up, it was, oh, well, why, why did I not hear this before? He turns up and instantly it's so easy to work with him. I think we had the album done in six days, or at least Declan playing and Paul and those overdubs. There may have been a few orchestral things. Yeah, I think they had on. some of Hannah's stuff added later on. Yeah, wasn't it? yeah. But that was it. Oh, it's so easy to work with. But he is a perfectionist. 
it, it's a strong point. It's not a criticism, Declan. So I'm not having a go. You, you want the most out of something. And I think you got it because he had to work really hard as well after we recorded it, where he was sending me ideas of which take could work best. And he's a master of that editing and just trying things out and getting people's opinions of it. He's, he's great. He's fantastic. But the idea of Declan just doing this album and it being the end of it, that was quite sad when we finished it. And then when he said he couldn't do a gig in this country because of COVID, I think it was Declan's idea to then do it in, in Dublin and have it filmed. And then we were here in Black Barn doing Pauls and Ben Gordelier. And so we had Izzy as well on the cello and we had Anthony from Stone Foundation on the sax. So we did that live here. Declan's in Dublin. And it was great to then just be involved with Declan again, doing this live performance for film, mixing it. And so it's just great to be involved with them again. Declan, when are you doing your next album? <laughs> you and I bumped into each other the first time I met you at Declan's gig at King's Place. Yeah. Off what the back a, of the album. And, he, and he gave you a little shout out during the gig <laughs> yeah. as well, didn't he? Which is lovely. He asked me to take a bow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get up? I can't remember. Yeah. Well, I had his manager sat next to me. I, I think I think I had no choice but to do it. <laughs> yeah. So yes, lots of people recorded here, folks. Some real magic albums when you dig into this, this story, like I say. Let's talk about the last five years. Wow. True Meanings. We then get other aspects. That brilliant, beautiful concert. We then get into On Sunset and Fat Pop. And it just feels like everything is just building, building, building. Yeah, he won't stop. I don't think he can stop. I think he just sees it as a case of the more you do this, the more you gather, the more the more knowledge you get, the stronger it makes you. It's definitely done it to his voice as well. Yes, he sounds better than ever, right? Because I was listening to some other stuff the other day on headphones and some style council things, like Wars Come Tumbling Down. As yeah, and you yeah. listen, you go, I love these songs. I sing along to these songs. But if you listen to the vocal performance, and this might not get me my final episode with Paul Weller, so I'll be oh, careful. Oh, right? But if you listen to the vocals, like vocally now, he's never been better. Listen to the way he sings English Rose then and listen to the way he sings it now. It's such a difference. His voice is huge now, whereas that back then, that there, there was almost a sense of, uh, I gotta say innocence, but maybe a bit of naivety or something in, in, in the vocal cords, not, not in the lyrics or anything like that. But the way he sings it now, it, it, there's something about, I don't know, it's not just smoking. It really comes down to you keep on singing and you use that muscle and it does get stronger. His voice is, is 10 times bigger than it was 30, 40 years ago. It's and, developed so much. And also, I guess he's seeing, seeing it as like an instrument that he's using and he, he knows how to play that instrument better than ever. Yeah, I think he understands his ideal keys. And I mean, there was a time whereby he wrote that song Aim High on Wake Up The Nation and he sang it falsetto which was very brave, but that's not his key anymore. So he can't do that. So he knows his restrictions. He knows his limitations, but that's making him stronger now. So he's finding a key that it does work in, not necessarily aim high. I think that's still in the same key. He just sings that on octave down or when he does it. When he writes a song, I think if he if it's got that mood and it's got that lovely sound that's coming out in his voice because the words make it say that or dictate that or however he got to that point it seems to be now we can also experiment a little bit so if it's a little bit too much we'll bring it down i could bring the key down electronically just to begin with if it works then we'll redo it or whatever but he's very very careful with that aspect of singing where some people say oh well this, this song's an e and they write a song in E. And E might actually be a really 
bad key for somebody's voice but Paul's definitely worked out sometimes you can push it a bit you know or put the capo on the F or the F sharp or whatever just to get a little bit of to that point where the voice is just right and alternatively you can push it too much but if you go down the other way it can sound a little bit lacklustre so I think he's you know he's worked that out and the sound of his voice the fact that we don't really have to do that much say comping on his voice in the old days, what you used to do is record several takes of somebody singing, and then you'd go through each take and find out which part you wanted to use and then put that onto a track and compile it all together, and then that would be your lead vocal. Whereas now, if he doesn't like something, we'll just sing over the other bit. If he doesn't like a bridge, I'll sing it better. That could be two weeks later. We'll just stick up the microphone, and he does it just there and then. We're not like questioning, oh, does that, is that the same sound or anything? So if it sounds different, it's just because he's singing it slightly differently. So he's aware of that. So we, he, he'll adjust it. Whereas like you asked me that 20 years ago, I wouldn't have known. Mm. If it sounded a little bit rough, we would have maybe blamed the mic sometimes. Uh, and that can still be the case. But now he's really, we've really honed into it. He knows when his voice is, is really working. You know, you can tell that if we get him in the morning or the early afternoon, what would have been maybe terrible before, because it would have been really hard work to sort of get your voice warmed up. I think he's already warmed up because he gets up so early and he's, you know, he's up and down and off to the, the nest for some coffee. He's raring to go. So the voice is there and mm. it's, it's so much easier to record him now than it was 20 years ago, which is, you know, when I look back on it, it was amazing. Sometimes we got through some of those sessions because it was really hard. You had to be on, on the ball. Paul wants you to really be listening. But when it's late at night, <laughs> yeah. it's very hard to make those judgments. <laughs> but now we don't really make those judgments late at night. It's not fair, I think. I yeah. think it's not fair on, on people's sanity, you know. We'll still listen to the album or whatever it is we're doing late at night. That's fine. We can listen to, like on 22 Dreams, I think we had a moment where that last piece of music, Night Lights, we had a moment where we'd finished it. And there was quite a place to get to. There was an awful lot going on into the recording to try to get it to be different. Even recording the sound of the music in this room with a couple of Neumann 87s, right? And just putting them in the room turning the room up and recording the sound of this room, putting that back then into the mix. It's like, why would you do that? Because this room sounds a bit weird, actually, when you listen back to it. So we really got into that, finished the mix, and then Paul wanted to listen to it. You know, I was looking at the time and maybe it was like one o'clock or midnight, say, and the song, the, the music is six minutes long. Now, we stopped playing it. We did nine more trips on that song and it was one o'clock. It must have been ten. By the time we got to the end of it, rewind, rewind, rewind. We just love that tune. But that mentality of like, you can still do it late at night, but you don't necessarily have to sing, but there's always a time yeah. to listen. Not just the vocal performance, but the songwriting, you know, the songs on, on Sunset, on True Meanings, you know, many of these songs are like some of the best songs you've ever written. You think of a song like Gravity, um, yeah. you think of a song like Village. These are just brilliant, brilliant songs. So as an engineer in that and producer working with them, it must be such a buzz to thinking that you're working with somebody and you're creating their best, some of their best work in their entire catalogue, right? I, yeah, does it, is it? I don't think it's their best i don't almost feel like it you're doing something that you think is going to be really good because everybody has to all hands on deck we've all got to make this as good for paul but we've also got to enjoy ourselves i don't know i think we'll allow it for a bit of error and it may not be the best because everybody's got their own opinion village is a great song but i'm probably the the odd one out where i'll pick another song that everybody else goes oh well that's that you know it's not as good as this one 
Yeah. They're all good, but you know, I'm, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm biased. <laughs> On Sunset comes out. We can't tour that album because yeah. we're in lockdown. Paul's reaction is, we go again. Right, so you're like thinking, oh, let's have a little breather. Let me put your feet up, you know. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what happened the week, sort of more or less before lockdown. Paul was down here for the week, and on the Monday, it was like, great, yeah, tour, oh, yeah, this is, can't wait for this. This is going to be immense. By the Thursday, it was like, fuck this, I just have to do another album. That's it, fuck it. It was within, we'd all seen those days the way the world changed in just a matter of days. This country did anyway. Yeah, so that reaction was, I'll just have to do another album. I've got to do something. But there was no, oh, well, I'll sit back. I mean, it's a bit like me creating a podcast, you know, it's like you have to you have to do something to keep busy, but also, I guess, keep that creativity going because he's in the zone. It's like, you know, in, if he's not going on tour to do these, well, that's, that's what I do, right? I create music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to put a question to you then in that case. Then. So did this start because of lockdown? This podcast, yeah, pretty much. It was an, it was it was something I'd wanted to do for a while. I was a radio presenter. I missed bits of it. I didn't miss playing the crap music and talking about celebrities all the time, you know. But I, but I miss broadcasting. I miss the journalistic side of my life when I was at the BBC and stuff. And I'd always wanted to do a Paul Weller podcast, right? And for for ages, but I couldn't think of the angle. Yeah, yeah. Because it was anybody can do a Paul Weller podcast, you know. When, you know, anybody could start that thing. It needed to be unique. And it was during the lockdown when I thought of that idea of. And it's true, you know, I never got to interview Paul yeah, when I was a yeah. radio presenter. Um, I know, I've heard this every time. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also, and the bit I've not talked about, is also like, I'd hear Gary Crowley accepted. I'd hear people interview Paul and I'd be like, they, they, they've not done their research. They don't know anything about his career. And I just get angry about these radio presenters. Yeah. Um, and I was like, I could do that anyway. So that idea came to me about the fact that, okay, well, actually it's the regret and things. So yeah, well, but it was lockdown. I thought this was going to be a weekly podcast for about 28, 30 episodes where I talked to a different fan every week, you know, wax lyrical about our love of Paul mm. and his music. And then that would be it. And then it, it evolved into something nuts. We're in Black Bomb, Christ's sake, talking to, you know, engineer and studio man of the manager of, you know, of Black Bomb Studio. It's, that and wasn't, also Charles Reese, yeah. 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 <laughs> that, 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 you know, Gandalf. It, it, that wasn't an inventor of the calendar. That wasn't the idea. Yeah, that wasn't the thing. This was meant to peter out after like 30 episodes. I could get on with my life, you know. And the, so, yeah, it, it, but it was a lockdown. It was a December 2020 project. It was a lockdown thing. We started recording in the summer of that year. And then, yeah, three years later, this thing's still going. Yeah, oh, fantastic, <laughs> fantastic. Yes, thank you. I've been Charles Reese. This is the Charles Reese Show, and uh, we have like nice to have Dan Jennings in this week. <laughs> I like being interviewed. It's nice. Fat Pop yep. recorded remotely, so people were emailing. You were still yeah. here. People emailing yeah. stuff or what? Yeah, because I was still I was living here at the time anyway. So my bubble meant that Paul was I was in Paul's bubble when he was here so legally everything was all above board everybody we still had to send things out for people to play to they couldn't come here though so Ben was always sending us drum takes and we had a few things I can't remember the precise things that we sent out but um, people have mentioned on the podcast talk of sending like click tracks or like you start with a click track what the bloody hell is a click track <laughs> well a click track is just uh, something indicating the time that you play to so all music usually has a meter of, say, four beats in the bar. So you need those beats in the bar and everybody sort of knows where they are. So they play along to it. And those beats we call a click. And is it literally like you hear the it thing on the track? Click. It can okay. be a beat. Something can play just the drums and we can loop that up. And that could be a click track. It's just so everybody plays to the same time and keeps to that time. It's a guide. I mean, you could say that, what's that Blue Oyster Cult song called? Don't Fear the Reaper. Oh, yeah. Cowbell. 
That's the click track. Okay, all right. It is just a generic term for here's the beat, follow this beat or whatever, do what you want on the beat. But just sending out a click track, you'd need to send out something else. Okay, it's the same with it. Okay. And yeah. so so you got Ben Gardelia emailing your stuff, you got yeah. Steve Craddock from Devon emailing oh, your yeah. stuff. Like yeah. we transfer. What are they doing? It still glides to stream, I think. Yes. Yeah. Well, because they've all got their own little studios and Steve's got a nice studio. It just made sense. I mean, Jacko got stuff from Jacko because he's got his own little studio. Studio, and the stuff that he sent us is amazing, which I have mentioned before. Jacko, that'd be 20 quid. Thank you. Um, we didn't <laughs> but, have a choice. There's such a different way of creating an LP. Yeah. And is that something first, you carried yeah. for, You carry forward to the next thing and go, well, let's do more of that type of stuff? Or In the end, we didn't really like it. Okay. I had to be honest. Most of the drums, not all of them, but most of the drums that Ben did, we got him down when everybody could was released from their own self-imprisonment. Ben came down here and we got him to redo most of the drums that he'd done. Just it's too hard to explain the differences. Can you change this? Can you change that? Oh, what about this? And what about that? It takes so long to do that. And particularly things like the sound, it's very hard to convey that. But he's really good, Ben. Really good. He would do anything. But we felt after a time, look, we need people. We need the physical human being, you know, in the room, especially for something so fundamental as drums. With a saxophone or a, a flute, Jacko's, these. You know, he's really good at that and he can get the sound. So that's fine. And if we want him to play another version, he's quite happy to come down here and expand on it or something. But yeah, it, it got a bit tiring doing this sort of uh, waiting for the files to turn up. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and there, there are other ways to do it. I've, I've heard of people doing it across the pond absolutely live. You know, you can have a session running in this country, I say Pro Tools, and you can have that session open in America at the same time. And you can be looking at what each other's doing. Okay, wow. You know, I think Steve Craddock for P.P. Arnold's album, I think he was on FaceTime or something. He was in Devon and the orchestra was in, I don't know, was it in Edinburgh or it might have been somewhere in Scotland. And, you know, he could do this thing where he could produce the session from his FaceTime, you know, and that sort of works. But people in the same room is just, it's the best. Yeah. You can't beat that. And also, like, you know, this family back to that we were talking about earlier, it's like the band are a family together. They're all mates together. You know, and they include yeah. you in that mix as well. You're all, you all get on really well. And it's that thing that I mentioned right at the beginning of the, the kind of osmosis of this band together, whereby they seem to be able to read, they're so tight. They seem to be able to read each other's minds of where somebody's going with something, which you, you only get, you can't do that over Zoom, can you? No, no. I think you could be lucky. You could be lucky. And, and some people just say, look, send us a load of takes and there and i'll piece them together and i'll find it but just you know the magic i think of when somebody comes down like when steve craddock's down he'll just put something down very quickly he'll already have made up a few things in his mind of what he's going to do he always does his homework possibly he's one of the guys that knows about guitar sounds he's got a very good ear for guitar sound a tone and and you just leave him to it and he'll give you like half a dozen tracks of things straight away. And I'm like, oh, God, this is amazing. Absolutely amazing. And he's a proper guitarist. You know, he's somebody that has learned his craft. He's really, he knows the sounds of what Paul loves, obviously what he, you know, he does for Ocean Color Scene as well. And it just seems to sort of just fit in perfectly. Whereas you can get some other guitarists, they've got their own style and it's almost far out there. There was like, what was that? Kevin Shields. 
Oh yeah, this is Wake Up the Nation. Yeah, they played on absolutely um, yeah. nuts. Absolutely <laughs> brilliant. What an amazing guy, right? But you know, you get people like that. They come in. They 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 sort of they hit your heart, and and you think, wow, that that is absolutely mental. And and Steve Craddock's the same. He can do some really mental stuff. But I think when you do get to know these people well enough, you are comfortable to know that. This is what they like to do. And if they say they want to do something different, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean because it's not too much effort. But when you've worked with somebody, say, for the first time, there are times where you're thinking, what are they actually thinking? What mm. do they really mean? And you can waste a lot of time trying to get to that point. But I think that would be good. It's a good, like, lovely team around here. And it's what amazes me the most is that Paul will get, if he does get the whole band down to do some recording, more often than not, it would be because he wants to get Steve Pilgrim playing acoustic guitar and singing. That, rather than get him on the drums, he'll get something a lot more personal in a song by doing that, you know, because he knows that sort of Pilgrim's more into that sort of point where Paul's singing or songwriting now. There's becoming something a lot more gentle, you know, the the gravities of this world. Mm. And, and um, uh, what was that other song he did? Aspects, yeah. Yes. Where there were like four of them playing acoustic guitar at the same time. Yeah. I thought, how can that happen? And it worked. It just worked. But that's because they know each other really well to be able to find their their little spaces in the song. Mm. Whereas you just get four random or new guys in to play, or three new guys to play with Paul. I don't know. I don't know. I I, I think a lot of them would probably be too nervous as well to even come up with anything, you know, or dare suggest it. Having Bruce Foxton in the studio must have been pretty special. Thinking about Wake Up The Nation. Yeah. He also produced his... Comeback oh, album, yeah. I suppose, with yeah. him, him and Russell back in yeah. the room, yeah. uh, all recorded here. I mean, that must have been a really special moment. It, that was good. They, they're a nice bunch of guys. What, what um, amazed me was the fact that they had um, Mark Brzezicki on drums. He's amazing, right? So he, he can do almost anything you ask of him. Bruce and Russ, they're not that demanding. They just know that once they rehearsed, and they don't want to re- over-rehearse it, it just seemed perfect to get them in the room together. Very quick to work with. They didn't want to do long hours which is pretty good. <laughs> but Mark and me were looking at each other. They chip off at about five or six o'clock in the evening and we're looking at each other. Well, we're doing an album. What should we do? Well, let's do some more recording and let's try a bit of this. And whether or not, you know, we thought it was the right thing to do because maybe Bruce and Russ didn't want that. But actually, it was probably to try to improve what we'd already done, maybe what Mark had done. So but having Bruce in was really good because having seen him play with Paul on Wake Up The Nation, on a couple of songs. Yeah, that's right. He sang backing vocals and played bass on Fast Car, Slow Traffic and bass on She Speaks. When Bruce was involved in the album, his style was so different than anybody else that had played prior. That was amazing. And then so to do the album with Bruce and Russ, you knew it was going to be more Bruce on it. And it was going to be going in that direction. It's sort of Bruce, Bruce's album. But I think by the end of it, it was Bruce and Russ's album, really. And they wanted it to sort of be seen that way. And I think, was it um, Foxton and Hastings on that album? I think it was the next album. Smash yeah, and I think or- originally it was it was just Fox, it was Bruce Foxton, but then yeah. repackaged. I think re- you know for the next release of it, it became a Foxton, and so the next one you're right yes, became Smash a Foxton and Hastings. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, they, it was good fun to do that album. Let me ask you about what comes next, and there's obviously only so much you can say. This is Paul's story to tell. Oh yeah, right. Did it feel like off the back of Fat Pop that we're we're going again? This is we're, we're going to make another album, or are you just always on? We're always using the studio. We're 
we're creating things we don't know where they're going to go we don't know what the album is we don't know what this project is we're just creating music and we'll see where it goes or is the intention to kind of go let's start on the next LP so with the last few LPs particularly I, I think there's like leftovers and those leftovers, they're not leftovers because they're not good tracks, not good songs. They just don't fit. And this idea, that's really interesting, is it? Because Gravity was one of those songs at yeah. one point where it just wouldn't Definitely. fit. And then he created an album around it. It's, it doesn't fit sonically. It's not right for the story. Like, how does it, how do you and he see an album as a collection of songs in that way that one would stick out or it wouldn't fit? Ultimately, Paul would. Paul knows it's the style of something. You know, if you record it and it's an acoustic and it's a beautiful song, your album that you're doing at the time is mainly the electric, then okay, it's sort of not going to fit. But I think that have forced him in the way to think about doing true meanings, which meant that he could put all these other much more subtle things on there. So some of the songs that didn't make the art last album, well, they, we probably started some of these songs when we were finishing, say, Fat Pop. And then definitely not going to be on Fat Pop. But when we came to actually start them properly, there were a few people at the time that weren't normally a part of the album making process. And it was really nice to sort of see Paul sitting down with some of these people. And they, I'm not going to tell you who they are. This is people he's collaborating with on the songs. Yeah. 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 And it became such a strong thing, this, that we thought, well, this has got to be the start of something different. So I think he's had a few really good ideas of who to work with, who to bring on board. And one of those is Jacko. And as for some of the others, you will find out, but I'm amazed at how beautiful some of these songs are. And some of the songs are so good, they may end up being on another album. They may not make this album. There will be eventually a point where I think it's going to be worth Paul working more and more other people special people, people that he hasn't worked with for a long time as well. That sounds so vague. <laughs> it really is. I don't know what to say. I would love to say that bringing Jacko back in to the fold has really changed some of the songs that Paul writes. He's writing songs with that sort of space in mind. And there is one song that I'm going to mention later where it was recorded live and some of you might know it. Some of you may have heard it on something, um, a TV drama that came out just after Christmas last year called Without Sin. And that is such a beautiful song. And Jacko is floating in and out of it. A large part of that is this lineup. But the people that played on that song, Paul's played with before. But this time round, I think on this album, it's much more sensitive to what's going on. I'd say can't really talk about anything else yet, but I will talk about that song in question is burnout. And I'm going to mention it later as well. Oh yeah. Okay. I mean, it's always special as a fan. You can try and pick up snippets of what's happening in Weller's world and you know, what's coming next the stories of who's working on things and whatever, and you get little bits and pieces. And there was something I wanted to ask about that, which was about road testing songs on the road. I saw him in Amsterdam in what would have been April, May, something like that, I think. And he played a song that was called Take. Yeah. And this was a new song he'd written with Noel Gallagher. Cut to the European tour that at the time of recording here, we're just in the middle of, and there's yeah. a song on the set list called Jumble Queen. And I saw it and I was like, bloody hell, I'm missing the European tour. I'm missing another new song. Yeah. It's yeah, not, it's yeah. the same song, right? It is. It started off as, um, started off as Jumble Queen or maybe Bad Honey, which then became Jumble Queen, which then became Take, which then went back to being Jumble Queen. There's this sort of morphing of song names and things, but it's quite normal for that to happen because 
the song progresses. And this song was quite straightforward, but it progressed as soon as the band started to play it live. So when you saw it, even though we recorded it by then, when you saw it, Paul's playing electric guitar on it. And that was quite instrumental, what he was playing and then what Ben was playing on the drums. That was quite instrumental. So we sort of revisited since oh really because you got that a lot back in the day of like the early solo stuff it, it, yeah. like Wildwood was an electric song on an electric guitar at one oh, point right, and yeah, all that you know right. yeah, yeah. and so that kind of idea of bedding in a song yeah. and and then working with you to capture the moments and stuff is really interesting it, it can just be Paul sat down on an acoustic guitar playing to maybe a click in his headphones or a basic beat in his headphones and like doing a basic take of it you know it could form many different ways but the fact that he's gone to play it live and then revisited the song just to give it a little enhancement makes me think yeah it is a really good song it's it's so much stronger as a result of it but when everybody comes to hear that you know next year at some point it will make sense it's not a million miles from what you're hearing live it's just there's some different people on it again who I can't name. <laughs> In terms of the relationship between you and that working relationship and creating, that relationship builds and builds and grows and grows to the point where that, there's you need that trust between an engineer and an artist to make it work, to be able to produce great work. You have that between the two of you, clearly. I mean, I've always sort of looked up to him, I think, especially since the solo, when he went solo. Well, I love what he did. I love the character of like bringing back guitars into music for him. And I just respected that, just a natural, normal respect for somebody. But because he's such a good musician, such a good singer anyway, it sort of puts him higher on the pedestal, you know, and that's quite a hard one to, um, you know, it's, it's not easy to work with somebody at first that's really that good. But I think now... And over the years, he's, he's just been really good. He's, uh, I think he's a really good boss. I think he's one of these people that uh, has always listened, even though you don't think he's listening. He's very shrewd. This is what he's like in the studio when he's listening to music, when he's listening to what we're doing. There's something going on in there that he's also thinking about other things. He's seeing the bigger picture. Yeah, so I think now with, with trust, he's done some amazing things to my life. And I think he's my son, Marco's godfather he's trying to sort of keep things i suppose those that are close to him to help them because we can only help each other out and i'd do anything any sort if he wants to record anything it's like yeah i absolutely love it and i think the fact that i could try to make it as painless for him um as possible or at least that's what i think maybe whether he thinks so or not i don't know but um we'll find out goes, oh, God, God, i wish you just shut up I wish you just shut up <laughs> In a way, I suppose it does speed things up. We can get something done fairly quickly without him having to then try to trust another engineer. Although there's some amazing engineers out there. I know he had a very good experience of working with somebody up at Abbey Road recently. You know, he does like working with other people and it's, you should always mix things up. But the trust thing, definitely. I would, I always find it hard working with anybody else that's of like such a similar stature. But over the years, and I've worked with some people, it's like Ray Davis, unbelievable, unbelievable guy. You think nah, he's, he'd be great to work with, and he was, but he's so remote. He didn't want to tell any of us what the words were, the lyrics were for the songs, so he wouldn't sing them. Right. Band would have to play them, but he wouldn't sing them. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what? what? <laughs> but, you know, you get a lot of people, they've, they've got their things. It's like, um, you know, they're, they're, they're probably amazing people to work with, but when you actually come down to it, they've got their quirks. Well, Paul's like, nah, he's just down to earth. Hmm. He says what he's thinking, and and he, he doesn't want to confuse anything. He doesn't, 
I've never sort of met somebody that wants to work so hard and and achieve so much in such a short period of time. Everybody else usually procrastinates or has their way to do it, but they want to chip away at perfection. Paul does want perfection, but he also just wants it to be interesting and not, you know, not tedious. But that thing of trust is a case of, well, if he does a take, then nowadays he asks me what I think of it. And I can be honest, you know, it's better just to say, I think I prefer the other one. And he'd be like, oh, okay. Or, well, shut up. What do you know? No, you never say that. Sorry, <laughs> no, no, no. Take that bit. Yeah, yeah. He would be interested for many people's opinions. Over the years, we've had playbacks of each album, playing it respectively to anybody. You know, it could be the band at first, obviously be people like Claire Moon and Bill, they'll have a listen. And then there'll be journalists, the, well, the label, of course, they'd have to listen to it. But it is interesting to hear people's feedback. But that's after the fact. When it's happening, you do need some form of trust, I think. You know, like I've, I've seen him, he must have done some amazing, well, he's done some amazing stuff with Brendan mm. over the years and Max, you know, how they got to that point. But I think the way we work now is so differently than the way he used to work then. It used to take a while to get the sound together, to then get everybody into the studio to make it happen, hopefully as quickly as possible. Now we sort of do the opposite. We have some things, some ways to get some good sounds, but Paul just comes in and we can get started straight away. We can have a whole band here and we'd be ready just to do it. Hence why it helps having your own studio. Hmm. But yeah, in terms of trust, I, I really think now it's it's a lot easier to work with him. And Paul knows it's so easy for him to work with all these other people, the band he trusts now, all these other music musicians that have played in the last few albums and people like Hannah, they're all trusted. You mentioned Marco, your son. Yeah. 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 Um, and he's already, he's already, he's already welling up folks. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're so proud of this kid. And uh, the, uh, I was, I was at the gig at Brixton Academy where he came out and played with Paul. Was it Malice, I think, wasn't yeah, it? Last yeah, song, last song, last night of the tour as well. Yeah. Uh, and he'd been looking forward to doing this because of COVID and everything. Paul asked him to do it the previous year and everything kept on falling through, COVID restrictions, this, that and the other. It just wasn't going to happen. And then finally it did. And bless him, it was bag of nerves all day. And um, he did it. And he killed it. He absolutely killed it. And I don't know, we couldn't be more proud. I just I remember the crowd giving it the Marco, Marco, <laughs> which was just brilliant. Oh wow! Well, I, I I must admit I did g some of them up beforehand. I went <laughs> when everybody was waiting to get in. I did ask some of them if they could like film it or something because I was on the side of the stage and I I filmed it, but it's never it just doesn't look right from the side of the stage. Yeah, yeah. it's just so much better in the audience, you know. And bless them, they did of course they. You know, it's the last song of the tour anyway. They're going to film it. But for him to be in there. And then I remember Steve Craddock sending me a photo that somebody had sent him. And it was just this perfect frame of black and white of Paul singing and then Marco's head in sort of like silhouetted in the background. And that's all he saw. And it's just that that's that was a moment. And, he'll, you know, even if he never did it again, I just think that is it's like a dream come true. He's been lucky. He's been really lucky. He does play on a song on this on the new album. I can tell you that because I'm sure he's telling people anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's on his um, on his LinkedIn. So for, yeah. <laughs> I mean, clearly, like he's, he loves the guitar. He's pretty good on it, right? <laughs> oh yeah, he's a big Steve Craddock fan as well. He loves Ocean Colour Sing, so it's heaven for him when he gets to see the the band rehearse. You know, uh, Paul's band rehearse year with Steve. Yeah, and Steve's been amazing to him as well. Just really sort of encouraging. You know, he's having. It's really good to have that for me. 
I don't know what to say. If I was Marco, I'd be like, I can't believe this. Yeah, yeah. I just, yeah. no, no, this isn't happening, is it? No, no, I can't believe it. And what is he like, 18, 19? He's 16 now. No, man. 16, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think he wants to, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I think he wants Steve Craddock's job. Okay. Yes, right. I think there's a little <laughs> bit of competition going on there. Or he would quite happily fill in for um, be second guitarist to Notion Colour Scene. Okay, all right. Well, Craddock, we're gunning for you. Can he blow into that bag organ thing that Steve Craddock plays on the latest oh, Melodica. Is that what that is? <laughs> is, that, is, is that what he plays? Because I never Ooh, see him at rehearsal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think Jacko started doing it now, but the last yeah. tour, <laughs> Craddock uh, was playing. On Broken Stones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was doing the old um, harp, um, <laughs> you know, the harmonica. Right. And then uh, that sort of could never be heard I think it was a struggle to hear that let me ask you about John Weller oh yeah good old John because so much of his essence his core values is in the studio right it's like you know he's everything in Paul's career now so much of John's way is in everything for us, the fans, you know, that yeah. love of the fans, all that kind of stuff seems to be here. You know, when John was around the place, what was that like? What was the vibe like here at Blackburn? If you want to get something done, ask John. If you weren't sure of anything, you think, well, what's happening? Well, I think we're going to do this, you know, I think, well, we should like make sure that Paul's happy in the studio, blah, blah, blah. Actually, I think it all started before this place where I noticed John and his personality and, and how he does things. First time I met him, I shall never forget that moment whereby, yo, so you've been looking after my son. Yes, son, have some of this. And he gets some money out and starts dishing it out. I say, no, 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 honestly, no, I'm paid. I'm paid. No, no, you're looking after my son. You've got to do that. And then he's just like, he wants to make sure that everybody around Paul is sorted and they're thanked. And I, I guess appreciated, you know, and he wants to make himself known to people because he knows he's going to have to deal with them again. And But he was a force, a proper force. And he's a very positive person and didn't really want to faff about. No time for people just wasting his time. Just say it how it is. Very much like, you know, where Paul gets it from. Yeah. It's real. I'll just keep it real. But also love the fact that um, he was very passionate about boxing. And that was a big, massive part in his life. And when there were times when it was quiet here, he would, you know, tell you the stories of there was this guy, I can't remember his name. Oh, something stone. And it was the only person that beat him, I think, twice. Otherwise, he went one every bout. And um, yeah, there was a time where by... John was waiting for this guy, his old boxer is his, to just to come around for lunch because they hadn't seen each other in probably about 40 or 50 years or something. I don't know, something ridiculous. Um, and he did. And Dean Powell came out and basically wanted to put the two together, you know, the two old boxers together and went out for lunch. And I mean, John was just amazed that day. He spent an hour and a half waiting outside, sat down on the sandbags there, only like on the pavement bit just waiting for this guy because he couldn't believe he was going to see this guy. And it was such a big part of his life. And then, yeah, we all, we all got to meet him and they all got to natter about the old days. And, and it's sort of another part of John's life, which was, it was massive. But I think that reflected in Paul as well. Paul appreciated, loved the fact that his dad was a boxer. And, and this sort of must have had a little bit of an impact as to maybe Paul taking on Jawbone, yes. the, the soundtrack, which was, you know, a massive thing at the time, you know. As, as for John, I think John was possibly that part of Paul that made it all possible. 
Paul didn't really have to work at that side of it. He does now, but he didn't in the old days. And what John did was just fantastic. Oh, I think everybody sort of mentions it from time to time. But, you know, when he mentioned that the best band in the fucking world or it is. And I always think of that. I always think of that. I even did a thing down the Curry Garden. The Curry Garden won an award. They've won several awards, but this is a Bangladeshi award. And it was going to be filmed by this Bangladesh TV company. So they came over. And they were filming. I, also, I went with my now ex-wife, Laura, went down to Curry Garden and they were filming people. Well, what's going on here? And Anis was saying, who's one of the brothers that owns it, he's saying, oh, yeah, this is just for the, um, they're doing it because we've won the award and they want some footage which they can show at the big sort of ceremony thing in, in Bangladesh. Oh, okay, cool. Well, do you mind if they um, interview you guys? And so, no, not at all. So Anis was... He just came and sat down with Laura and myself and said, look, I'll pay for this. Do you want to lift back home afterwards as well? Go, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. Loving, loving this. Great. I only had a beer, right? A beer, maybe two beers, but, and I wasn't really drinking, but Laura did her bit of the interview. It was all lovely saying, Oh, yes, we love coming here and the food's lovely here. Blah, 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 blah. And all I could think of was John Weller just popped into my head. Camera turns to me. I said, so what do you think of it? And I just said, oh, it's the best restaurant in the fucking world. Like that. <laughs> thinking of John. And, um, and the, the, everybody was like, what? You can't say that. You can't say that. So I thought, oh, fuck this. I'm going outside for a vape, right? Went outside and the guy who was running this company, he came out and the cameraman came out and they just went, sir, thank you very much. We're going to use that. We're going, definitely going to use that. And apparently they did and they translated it as well. Oh my God. That's brilliant. <laughs> I should ask you in terms of John Weller, did you enter the card school? Was that ever a thing? For no, you? absolutely not. <laughs> no, no, it's, I said it's a mugs game. You're a mug if you do play with John. Because everybody, almost everybody lost. Kenny says he won a few times, and he probably did, but everybody lost, really. <laughs> hey, look, Charles, this has been what an absolute joy. Oh, what, what a blast, man. A pleasure, absolute pleasure. I have two final questions for you. Yes, sir. Okay, so you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be The Jam, it can be The Star Council, it can be Paul Weller solo. What are you going to go yeah. with? That, obviously, is a very tough question. <laughs> it's an impossible question. Yeah, right? yeah, there are so many songs. My first choice was Into Tomorrow, because it was the first thing that I heard of him solo. And it just blew my mind. And all the gigs he's played at, amazing. It's really, I love again how that song's evolved, though, to the point, like, the little bit of the minute where him and Steve Craddock are like, or he's sat down on the speaker and he's playing. Oh, yeah. yeah it's they, just, they, they, they it's start, wonderful they to watch jam. That. Yeah, they, it's lovely. They give himself a little, like, minute or two minutes or a few minutes, maybe, of where they can just indulge the moment a little bit, but with groove. Yeah. Not with, like, massive solos. And no, because it used to be quite, an, almost like an angry song, whereas now yeah. it's like a really, and again, yeah. how that kind of thing's evolved over time is lovely. I like it when it is angry though i've got me then steve white plays it it's amazing yeah absolutely amazing that groove that particular thing especially that sort of you know changing man similar sort of thing but no, it's a lovely song absolutely love the song but i almost feel it's like a little bit too predictable in a way because the first thing you hear often can mark it as the best but actually he's done a song recently that song burnout which i mentioned earlier that i think that could be you know my favorite song of his. That's mad, isn't it? I, I love it. <laughs> when he first played it, you know, this, it was just a moment. And I, I haven't really seen that before. I've seen him play beautiful songs. I mean, he played me um, years ago, he played me this demo of Loveless. Which, okay, off of, um, what was that, Heliocentric? Was it off? Oh, yeah, was it? yeah, yeah. But he, I think he did a demo on um, at Abbey Road or did a verse maybe at Abbey Road. And whatever it was, it was 
amazing. It didn't have the lyrics in. It had some of the words and it had these nah and la's and all that stuff. That was amazing. I just thought, even not as a complete song, it's one of the best things I've heard. And I sort of got that back tenfold with Burnout. Somehow or another, it just seemed perfect. It was the most different thing I've heard him do for a long time. And uh, I've heard some people say, you know, it sounds or reminds them of this or reminds them of that or whatever. But watch that TV. They were listening to it in the car, driving somewhere. So we got like snippets of it. But I don't know. We've heard the whole thing, have we, right? Well, yeah, snippets. Yeah, you've had snippets. You you hear a bit of it at the very beginning of Without Sin. And then you hear it at the very end. Those are the only times you hear it. But you get the gist. That is the song. You know, it does go somewhere else. But yeah, it's a beautiful song and, and, and I hope, I hope he will do a version live because I think it's very possible. They did it live in the studio or pretty much. So yeah, I look forward to that. That will be an amazing tour. So next year, maybe, you know, we'll sort of not our next bunch of rehearsals. We'll say, well, come on, Paul, can we have a go? Go on. <laughs> go, it no, in. it's too early or all right. Yeah. Yeah. This would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Either way, it's a beautiful song written out of time just after that you know, just after the lockdowns. So it's sort of the meaning of it. It's it's perfectly timed as well. Hence why Johnny Harris wanted to use it, I think, in Without Sin. Yeah, nice. I love that. Okay, final question. So purpose of this podcast is for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. It was my one big regret. So I've created a podcast to make it happen. Here we are. And who'd have thought that that silly idea that you asked me about earlier, creating po- in lockdown would get me here to Black Barn Studio, you know, let alone anything else that comes after this. I mean, this is a dream. What should I ask him if it happens? If this interview comes off? Yeah. Yeah. What, what should I ask, man? Mm, yes, a toughie, that one. That really is a toughie. Um, who would he like to produce him? Which producer would he most like to work with? That's a good question. Dead or alive, presumably. Hopefully alive, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. as in this could be a possibility. We're lining up options. Why not? Would it be someone like Brian Eno or, you know, because I'm, I'm sure they've met in the past. We'll see. I did read that Brian Eno had wanted to do it or offered to do it or something that came up in research once. I can't remember where that was now. Yeah. I wonder if that was anything to do with Robert White. It could well have been. Because yeah. they were both sort of crossing each other's paths at yeah. the time of um, Sheep. Is there anybody in your head that you'd like to take on that role? I'd love to see Daniel Lenoir sit down with Paul and I work on his stuff. Oh, he's a producer that worked with Eno on uh, some of the U2 albums, but he's so musical. You know, he's really, he loves his old analog gear and all that stuff. And um, he's worked with some amazing people. Neil Young, he's done well, at least one of his albums. There are some producers who are like hugely in demand, people like Pharrell Williams, people like Rick Rubin, somebody like that. That feels like maybe that's towards the end of the career, doesn't it? Is Rick Rubin still with us? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure. I think that might be a little bit too American for him. Just, so, I don't know if that American thing is, uh, not for, well, maybe for me. Um, I can't tell, can't speak on Paul's behalf there, but... But then maybe, maybe a Dre or whatever, you know, yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. sort of, that would be weird. That would be good. Yeah. I'd love the Adrian Sherwood with, I mean, I, you've heard me talk on the podcast before my love of unused sound and the stuff yeah. he's doing. I'd love to hear Adrian's take on deconstructing some of this stuff with Paul would be really cool. And that, you know, yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. There. Definitely. There's quite a few people I think he should work with, but you know, most of all, somebody that's going to be on his level, I think. But you know, I keep talking about Dre now, can't get him out of my head. <laughs> um, but then that could be a completely opposite thing. And that would just fire off yeah. something completely different in Paul. Oh, yeah. I'd love to see something. But then, you know, you just have to dip your feet, your toes in the water and not immerse it for a full album. Imagine doing a whole, whole album with Snoop 
Yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Doug. <laughs> or Lee Scratch Perry when he was with us. Yeah, amazing. Oh, that, that would have, oh, yeah, that would have been fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Just nuts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've got something in the studio there where Paul stuck it up and it's Lee Scratch Perry just staring at me. I saw the that black, the black arc yeah. thing. Like, yeah, 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 I saw that. Yeah, That's like, really cool. He's uh, the upsetter looking at me. <laughs> nice. That's a bit of inspiration for you. Yeah. Charles Reese. this has been an absolute joy. Look, we all look forward to what comes next. Thank you for playing your part in this story and the music and all that. Oh, you're welcome, sir. Look, thanks for joining me on the podcast, man. An absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Cheers, Dan. Well, there you go. What an honour. My thanks once again to Charles Reese for joining us on the podcast. I told you it was good, right? Head into my show notes for this episode. You'll find more details about songwriting credits, performance credits, and so much more as well on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Just check out the show notes for this episode with Charles Reese. Now, whilst you're there on my website, do head inside my store. Get yourself some official podcast merchandise in time for Christmas, including our The Complete 180 Paul Weller Fan Podcast mug. And if you fancy it, get yourself a shout out with a virtual coffee as well. Doing exactly that is Bev, who says, love your podcast. Thank you. Hello to Paul Hargate, who says, well done, Dan. Thanks for soundtracking my drives to work and dog walks these last few years. Thank you, Paul. Hello to Stuart F, who says, hi, Dan. Thanks for providing such a great pod for the past couple of years. I'll miss it hugely. All the best in your future journeys. Thank you, Stuart. Hello to Ducassi Girl, who says at last a podcast worth listening to. Best episode, Yolanda Charles. Hello to Johnny Lancaster, who says, Hi Dan, Tuesday mornings won't be the same without a new episode. Happy Christmas to you and yours. Thank you, Johnny. Same to you. Hello to Jason Pevavar, who says, Hi Dan, thank you so much for such a brilliant podcast series and best wishes for the future. Thank you, Jason. Hello to Ricky B, who says, So Don Johnson finally got his man. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> Thank you, Ricky. Hello to Martin Bonhom. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee. Hello to Mike C. Hi, Simon Carslidge. Hello to Martin Glover. Hello to Andy Cliff. Thanks to you, sir. Hello, Jordan Cartmel, who says, Thank you so much for this podcast. Primarily, it's about Paul Weller, but it's become much more with such wide-ranging interviews. You should be so proud of what you've achieved. I look forward to hearing about your further projects. Thank you, Jordan. That means a lot. Hello to Jackie Hoyle. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee. Hello to Colin, who says, brilliant job, Dan. Last few to go, and fingers crossed you've achieved your goal. Hopefully, we shall see a book of desperately seeking Paul one day. You never know, Colin. Thanks to John Nicholson, who says, thank you. It's been outstanding. And thank the big man for the music when you finally meet. Thank you, John. Hello to Martin Morrow. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee. If you want to get involved, head to my website. Two final episodes to go. Get your shout out, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And don't forget, make sure whatever you do, you sign up to follow wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, for instance, you can leave a review if you enjoy what you hear. It's always appreciated. Make sure you follow on Spotify as well. Spread the word on social media, at WellerFanPod on X, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Next up, the second in our Black Barn trilogy, an incredible guest and another world exclusive. On the next episode, you're going to hear from Paul Weller's manager, Claire Moon. Claire has never ever spoken to anybody about her connections with Paul Weller and the inside operation at Black Barn. It is another real honour to be able to share this episode with you. Make sure you follow, you subscribe wherever you get your podcast. You do not want to miss this one. Claire Moon on the next episode of Desperately Seeking Paul. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.